Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who does not leave us in our despair and brokenness, but you sent your son Jesus to be the savior of the world. And this morning we come to acknowledge that he is alive and that he is coming again soon. And we wait for that day of justice. We wait for that day of healing. We wait patiently for that day of his return. And yet we also acknowledge this morning, Lord, that that waiting is not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting that we are called to make preparation for the wedding feast, to prepare to receive the bridegroom when he comes. And so now, God, as we turn to your word, would you speak to us through your spirit about that which we can be about as we wait, as we wait actively, as we wait persistently, as we wait and walk with Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Good morning. It's an honor to welcome you to Faith Covenant Church on this uh, Sunday morning. As we do remember the tragedy of 15 years ago, we are also in a season of celebrating the good things that God is doing in the midst of our faith community and in the lives of the people who are worshiping with us here in this place. We are uh, launching our new series that is going to be a three-week series that we're calling Ready to Grow because this last spring, if you've been with us, you know that we had a successful campaign to raise funds to launch an expansion of our staff and ministries to prepare for the future that God has for us. And so we wanted to take some time as we kick off this fall ministry season, as we get back to school and back to work from vacation and and focus on where God is leading us as a faith community ahead to, to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us at Faith Covenant Church to be ready to grow? What does growth mean to us One of the things I'd like to suggest that we need to understand as we talk about church growth is that healthy things grow. Whether we're talking about plants or children or our own character or disciples or churches, if we are talking about a living, breathing thing, then healthy things are growing things. Healthy things grow. But what does growth really look like and what does it mean to us as Christians? Last week we looked at the mission of Jesus in Matthew 9 and talked about how part of growth is that we will see more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We will develop within ourselves a heart of God for people who are far from him and we will have a passion for the harvest as we follow Jesus. But we also recognize that it means that we don't just bring them into the fold, that we have to take responsibility for them once they're here. And as Jesus said in his great commission, we have to teach them to obey everything that he has commanded. And I don't know about you, but learning to obey everything that Jesus commanded is a a lifelong process for me. So it's true that growth means growing in numbers and seeing new people come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we also recognize that growth means going deeper in Christ, even as we go further in the mission of Christ. In fact, what we will see from Scripture is that these two are not separated, but really are two sides of the same coin. Deeper in Christ and further in mission are a part of God's design to grow us as disciples of Jesus and to use us to make a difference in his world. We are at a key transition point in the life of our faith community as we begin to look forward on this vitality pathway that we've been walking together about how the Holy Spirit will lead us into this next season of life 
And as Pastor Andy Stanley had said, are we willing to do the things that no one else is doing in order to reach the people that no one else is reaching? Because ultimately, if we look at the life of Jesus, that's what we see him doing. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to spend some time with Jesus in a very specific story where he spends some time with a Samaritan woman at a lonely well. And we're going to look at how his life was modeled after this passion for the harvest and a willingness to take the risk to do the things that nobody else would do in order to reach the people no one else is reaching. We learn from stories, and so I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 4. And we're going to spend some time looking through this story of Jesus and this uh, meeting with a woman that was unexpected to all those around him, but turned out to be a very powerful and poignant story for us today as well. In chapter 4, Starting at verse 1, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus is getting popular. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, where... Uh, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to this well to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Uh, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. What an amazing story that we see, this interaction with Jesus and this woman who was not on the radar of Jewish religious leaders of his day. She was not the target audience for their ministry. She wasn't the outreach focus for their mission teams. I'd like to take some time and look at seven features of the story for us today that will set up the context as we again spend the next three weeks sitting with Jesus and his disciples with this woman at the well. The first thing is the setting. Verses 1 through 3 set up the context of the story for us. It says that, that Jesus had begun his ministry. As you, as you know, he went and was baptized by John in the, in the Jordan River. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. And he was empowered to begin this ministry in the name of the Father. And the Pharisees begin to take notice that Jesus is gaining more disciples than John. And they had already been investigating John because they were concerned about this. And it says now they had turned their attention and their investigation on Jesus. So Jesus, knowing that his time had not yet come, leaves Jerusalem and heads back north towards Galilee, his hometown where he had begun his original ministry. But as he heads north, he goes away from Jerusalem through an unusual route. And that's the second feature of the story is the route that Jesus chose to take. The route that Jesus took north led him through Samaria, and this was not the normal route that people took in those days. It was the shortest route, but it was also a difficult mountainous route. Most conservative religious Jews would go through Jericho and then north to avoid Samaria altogether. In the Old Testament, the northern kingdom of Israel, which was ultimately based out of Samaria, had turned away from God. It had been conquered by the Assyrian armies in 722 BC who repopulated the region with people from throughout their empire. So yet remnants of the defeated Israelite kingdom mixed with Persians and other people of other ethnicities and the paganism of those other countries mixed with countless other practices making the religious impurity of the Samaria area infamous among the Jews. In time, scholars say that monotheism returned to Samaria, but it suffered some important changes because the Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament writings of the prophets and the wisdom literature because they were all based on Judea and Jerusalem as the center of life and faith, and they focused on the line of David as the true line of the Messiah. And so they rejected all of those writings. And by Jesus' day, there had become a smoldering tension between the people of Samaria and the people of Judea partly based on race, partly based on religion, and it echoed centuries of terrible political fighting. Thus, when Jesus meets this woman at this well at noontime, alone there with him, this man and this woman, this woman is bearing a history and a language and a religion and attitudes of people that are far, far on the outside margins of Judaism. A first century reader would barely expect Jesus and the woman to acknowledge each other's presence, much less spend any time speaking to one another. Which leads us to the next feature of the story is the time of day. It's the sixth hour. It is noontime. It's high noon at the well, and Jesus and the woman find themselves alone in this center of the town. And in this culture, scholars tell us that water collection was generally the responsibility of women. And as such, it became an opportunity for the women of the community to gather and to meet and to talk and to share stories. And yet, 
Most of the water collection was either done in the early morning or in the late evening in order to avoid the hot Mediterranean sun. And so here this woman comes to gather water at noon, suggesting that she was seeking to avoid contact with the other women from her community. The time of day reminds us of the woman's social isolation, and she's trying to avoid contact with all people. Later in the story, we hear that the reason for her isolation that Jesus surmises is that she has a a doomed reputation in her hometown, and she's broken the morals of her community, making Jesus' overture and conversation with her all the more unlikely and remarkable. He is crossing a whole lot of boundaries here. The surprising thing is not that Jesus would ask her for help with getting a drink of water, but that he would ask her anything at all. Which leads us to the next feature of the story, the water itself. See, this idea of living water is not an uncommon phrase in their culture. For us, it might sound a little surprising that that she's drawing water from a well and Jesus brings up this kind of abstract concept of living water and, well, how could she know what that is and what is he talking about? For us, it's very new and different. But in that day, water that flowed was considered living water, like a spring or a river or a stream. Water that was moving was considered living water. Other water that stood still, such as water in a well or in a cistern in a pond, was not living water. And according to rabbinic law and religious practice in that day, living water or moving water was the only water that could be used in religious purification rituals where people could be washed clean in preparation for worshiping God. See, everyone knew that Samaria had no rivers or streams, and even Jacob had to dig a well there in order to get water to feed or to water his flocks. And if we go back and look at multiple Old Testament examples, we can see the prophet Isaiah rebuking the people of Israel in Jeremiah 2.13, where he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And Isaiah uses the same imagery when he exhorts all the people of Israel who are thirsty to come to the the source of living waters supplied by God in Isaiah 55, 1. And if you look at the prophets Ezekiel and Zechariah and their vision of the, the end of time, as we sang, when Jesus comes again, when he returns, the end of time, they have a vision of living water literally pouring from the temple in Jerusalem out to the Dead Sea into the Mediterranean Sea. And scholars suggest that interpreters in Jesus' day understood this was a prophetic symbol of the Holy Spirit of God being poured out into the world. You see, Jesus is talking about a new life to this woman that is available only through the Spirit of God. Water is the symbol of this new reality, and Christ himself is the source of this precious living water which can transform even this woman's isolation in her brokenness and in her sin. It is the gift of God. In fact, later Christians would understand this, under, uh, this language of gift directly related to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is his gift to you and to me and to this woman at the well through his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the water that eliminates thirst. This is the water that leads to eternal life. This is the the water that is a symbol of a life nourished by the Spirit of God within us. See, when she asked Jesus to give her this water, she has no clue what she's really asking for. 
She's still thinking in earthly terms about water for her jar, not water for her soul. And how often do we, too, misinterpret the invitation of Jesus to have some kind of earthly experience of religion and church and miss the whole point of it all, that he wants to give us the living water of his spirit within us. Which leads us to the next feature of the story, which is the woman herself. See, Jesus immediately personalizes this situation for the woman by focusing even more on her own life circumstances, by highlighting the meaning of what they're discussing upon her personal choices and the past history of her relationships. Go, call your husband and come back, he says. Uh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, that's true, isn't it, Jesus said. You've had five, and the man you're now living with isn't your husband. Gulp. See, the woman's personal life, with all its hidden details, is now brought out into the open, which is a hugely risky situation to be in. Here she is, exposed before this Jewish rabbi, with all of her sins and faults laid before him. What is she going to do? The conversation has shifted from a cultural separation between a Jew and a Samaritan and between a a man and a woman to the relational separation of, of a husband and wife and to the sinful separation of the broken morals that separated the woman from God and from the the people in her own community. See, the real problem that Jesus is getting her to realize is in her relationship with God. Jesus' apparent prophetic ability to tell her all the things that she had ever done opens the door for the deeper question not only of her identity in God, but his identity in God. Who is this man? I I can see you're a prophet, she says. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews worship in that, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So again, perhaps the woman is sensing that there's a, there's a religious motive that Jesus had here, but she's deflecting again. Maybe she's saying, okay, I understand the problem, but the, but the separation, it seems too great. There's physical separation, there's relational separation, there's cultural separation. How am I supposed to know how to get right with God? Who, who has the right way? Our fathers worship here. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which way of worshiping is right? How do I know who I'm supposed to follow? In reality, she tries to deflect the topic by turning to the Jewish and Samaritan disagreement over where to worship and how to worship. And Jesus, while affirming the foundations of the Jewish faith and the Jewish worship, says this is all of little importance because both places will soon be obsolete. In fact, a cataclysmic change in worship is about to occur when Jesus goes to the cross and offers himself as a sacrifice once for all, putting an end to the need to have a place for worship. You see, true worshipers, he says, will not need a holy place. They will only need a holy person. True worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Which brings us to the next feature of the story the source of this living water. How can I find this living water? Worship in spirit and truth becomes the key phrase that controls everything that Jesus is trying to communicate here. You see, just as God is love and just as God is light, as we see in the Gospel of John, God is also spirit. And we have to understand that when when Jesus invites worshipers to worship in spirit, he's not inviting us to worship in our spirit. He's invited us to worship in the power and the presence of God's Spirit 
within us. He's talking about a worship that is animated by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God that comes on human beings when we open ourselves to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. You see, and again, it's spirit and in truth are not two separate features. Worship empowered by God is also informed by the revelation of God and provided to us by the one who is himself the word of God, the truth of God, Jesus Christ. He is the source of God's spirit for everyone. This is worship that is not tied to holy places, but a holy person who through his cross inaugurated an era in which the Holy Spirit will change everything, not only for this woman, but for you and for me. Which leads us to the final feature of the story to set the context for how we understand what is going on here is, who is this Messiah? The woman tries to deflect one more time by acknowledging both her people and his people believe that one day this Messiah person will come and and then he'll explain everything. And so, you know, Jesus, that's fine, but ultimately we're just going to have to wait until the end to figure it all out, right? In the end, it'll all work out when this Messiah comes. But Jesus calls her bluff and he reveals to her that he is the Messiah by saying, I who speak to you am he. Tomorrow has arrived. Don't wait any longer. The day of salvation is here now because I am here now. Interestingly, scholars say that the way that the NIV has translated this phrase, I who speak to you am he, misses the the core language that he uses where he starts with the Greek, ego eimi, which literally translates, I am. And if you go back to the original Hebrew, the divine name of God that he revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai was the great I Am. And when they translated the Hebrew Yahweh into Greek, it translated Ego, a me. And Jesus comes to this woman, broken, destitute, isolated from her community, lost in her sin, saying someday the Messiah is going to come and then everything's going to be explained and it'll all be okay. He says, Ego, a me. I am has come to you today. I am here. I am he. I am the one who can solve your problems, who can lead you to the source of this living water. I am the one who can open the door for the spirit to be poured out into your heart, into your life, into your family. The question is, do you want to take a drink? Yahweh I am is here. In this story, we begin to again see an expansion of the missional heart of God displayed in Jesus. Here we see a template of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are this woman. You are this woman. I am this woman. We all have had this experience of knowing that we have a past and a history and that we've made mistakes and we've, we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God and we hide away those sins and we, we distance ourselves from other people and we don't want to have our sins exposed because we don't think it'll be acceptable. We don't think we'll be good enough. And yet Jesus comes and meets us in our lonely places and he says, I have a source of living water. I have a gift for you. If you only knew who I was, you would have asked me, and I would have given you living water to drink. Here also, 
we have an indication of the life and the mission of the church that we have to follow as examples and followers of Jesus Christ. In John 4, we have a challenge as we look at the life of Jesus to ask ourselves, are we, ha- are we willing to take a risk to trust God to lead us to the places that he would have us go, to examine the margins of our world and to be willing to step across the boundaries to make a difference in the lives of people who are far from God. Again, in the words of Andy Stanley, are we as a church willing to do the things that no one else is doing in order to reach the people that no one else is reaching? If we don't do it, who will? Where is our Samaria today? Where are the boundaries between the people who are in the church and the people who are not in the church, between the people who know Jesus and the people who don't know Jesus? And how many of our cultural barriers and our religious barriers and our own comfort barriers are preventing us from stepping over those boundaries to to taking the hard way into Samaria out of our comfort zone to be able to share a cup of cool water with somebody who is desperately thirsty and in need of good news? And then for us personally, turning it inwards on ourselves, two key questions that this story has for us is, do you know the Christ? Do you know Jesus as the source of living water? And will you take a drink if he offers it to you? You see, Jesus isn't concerned about the Samaritan woman's credentials any more than he cares about our Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist or covenant credentials. It's not about your religious background. It's not about the denomination that you belong to. It's not about the church that you call home. It's about whether or not you know Jesus. And it's about whether or not you are willing to allow his spirit to be the true source of water in your life. Have you discovered the living water? Are you parched and thirsty and spiritually hungry this morning? Are you wondering where God is in the midst of your life? He is right here, right now, in the name of Jesus. His spirit is present, willing to pour out living water to you and to me. All we have to do is ask. Because Jesus said, you do not have because you do not ask. But everyone who asks receives. And when he said this, he was talking about the gift of the Spirit of God. Are we, as Christians, growing in the depth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives through the power of this Spirit? Because you see, in this story, what we see is the combination of growing deeper in Christ and going further in mission. Jesus exhibits the power of the Spirit of God at work for this woman. And thereby, as he lives out this call to love this woman in the name of God, he demonstrates the same power of the Spirit that is able to be at work in her life if she so desires. As we seek to grow as a church, we seek to grow first and foremost in the Spirit and in truth ourselves. And as we allow that Spirit to be poured into our lives, Jesus said it it bubbles up, it, it wells up within us. We too become a well and a source of living water and it spills over in our lives to other people. And hungry and thirsty people see and they come and they drink and they too come to know this living water. The power of the Spirit work, at work within us is the very power that drives us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It is the heart of God that gives us the passion of God to reach those who are far from God. So we as a church need to be making sure that we too are growing deeper in Christ and further in our spiritual life in Him so that we can be empowered to go into the world and fulfill this mission that He's given us to 
to fulfill. That's what we mean by growth here at Faith Covenant Church. See, this is the true gift of God for everyone. It's living water. It's moving water. It's a water that will carry us into the future if we simply, as Cindy and Katie shared with us and our kids, put our trust in Him. Would you pray with me? God, as we sit with Jesus and this woman at the well, would you pour your spirit into our hearts and into our minds, opening ourselves to the truths that you have for us? Would you give us your grace and your mercy as we identify our lives with this woman and her isolation and her brokenness? And would you give us courage and faith to identify ourselves as your disciples with with Jesus' work and his mission to be a source of living water for this woman that would bring healing and wholeness. And God, as we see the response of this woman and we see the response of Jesus' disciples, would you help us to see ourselves in this story so that we too can respond and be a part of your mission of love to this world? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Kurt, thank you so much.